0: This is Christian Knutson and Sarah Hopeful with your local news, coming to you live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. All records from the now-closed Republican-led review of the 2020 presidential vote in Wisconsin will be made available to the public, the Associated Press reports. In a hearing earlier today, an attorney representing the probe claimed that all files were being uploaded to a website and will be available to the public soon. This review, which ended in August and was led by former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman, found no evidence of voter fraud. Liberal watchdog group American Oversight filed a lawsuit to prevent records from the election probe being deleted. Hundreds of documents have already been made public as a result of four separate lawsuits filed by that group.
1: Wisconsin has become a national hotspot for political advertisements this year. According to Wisconsin Public Radio, the U.S. Senate race between incumbent Republican Ron Johnson and Democratic challenger Mandela Barnes has yielded the highest number of TV ads of all Senate races across the country. A new report from the Wesleyan Media Project found that ads for Wisconsin's Senate race ran over 14,000 times between September 5th and September 18th. Wisconsin's governor's race came in third place nationally, for the most political ads, right after Texas and Florida. Negative advertising has dominated the commercials in Wisconsin, with attack ads accounting for 63% of Senate and 74% of gubernatorial ads.
0: Yesterday, a Sheboygan County resident became the first Wisconsinite to be infected with West Nile virus this year, reports the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. Typically, Wisconsin has about 20 cases of West Nile each year. Though this case reaffirms the importance of avoiding mosquito bites, the State Department of Health Services reports that the majority of people infected with this virus do not get sick. Of the 20% of people who do become ill, symptoms are pretty mild, typically. Only 1% of infections result in serious symptoms. Currently, there are no treatments or vaccines to prevent contraction of West Nile virus. Residents are advised to wear long sleeves and pants and to use bug spray while outdoors, at least until Wisconsin's first hard frost, which will kill off mosquitoes that carry the virus.
1: A new report from the Brookings Institution found that the city of Madison is one of the least prepared cities to utilize new federal funding for clean energy investments. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that Madison is falling behind on its climate goals and failing to meet its targets to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. The report's findings were based on Madison's 2011 Sustainability Plan, which is currently being updated to include more ambitious goals for decarbonization. It is unclear when a revised plan will be made public. Climate legislation passed over the past year has the potential to reduce carbon emissions by 40 percent from 2005 levels, though far from the reductions recommended by scientists. Mayor Satya Rhodes-Conway announced today that she was joining a national campaign called Solutions for Pollution, urging President Joe Biden to use his authority to accelerate the renewable energy transition while also reducing toxic air and water pollution.
0: Jeffrey Copeland, the principal hired to lead Senate Middle School on Madison's East Side, has left this position less than a month after starting. This news comes two weeks following an announcement by the Madison Metropolitan School District that Copeland was out on leave. Copeland formerly served as a principal in Atlanta and has had a long career in education. No information has been released about the nature of his departure. The Capital Times reports that two former school administrators, Susan Applenap and Randy Kubek, will be filling his role as co-interim principals for the remainder of the year. The hiring process to find Sedent Middle School's next permanent principal began immediately following this announcement.
1: And those were your local news headlines.
0: Cow manure is one of the biggest factors creating crappy conditions on Madison's beaches. Phosphorus from agricultural runoff creates blue-green algae blooms in the city's lakes, which can pose a danger to both humans and animals alike. Earlier today, Dane County Executive Joe Parisi announced his newest plan to fight back in this war on cow waste. WORT producer Nate Hout has the story.
2: We can create a one-stop service for farmers' manure.
0: Dane County Executive Joe Parisi
3: and members of the Clean Lakes Alliance met today in front of the county's natural gas plant at the Dane County landfill, which helps ship renewable natural gas created from methane across the country. There, they proposed a new initiative to address manure runoff in Dane County's lakes and streams. As part of his proposed 2023 county capital budget, Parisi plans to begin a feasibility study to build a new community manure processing plant. The budget includes $3 million to pay for the year-long study, as well as purchase the land to build the new processing facility. Part of the study will include finding out how much manure can be processed, environmental and financial benefits, and where to put the facility. The facility will be filled with cow manure, so the facility will smell. But Parisi says that, though the final location will be determined over the course of the study, it will be built in a rural area and not in any neighborhoods. Manure is used by farmers to fertilize the land, adding nutrients such as nitrogen, phosphorus, and potassium to the soil. Winter is often seen as an attractive time for farmers to spread manure. Crops don't grow during the winter, and farmers tend to have more time on their hands. And the frozen ground is less likely to be compacted by tractors spreading the manure. But Parisi says that winter manure spreading can cause a host of ecological problems, especially here in Dane County.
2: About 50% of the total phosphorus runoff into our lakes occurs between January and March when winter spread manure is sitting on top of frozen soil and is vulnerable to spring rains which are occurring more frequently due to climate change.
3: The runoff from the cow manure can cause a crap load of issues from area lakes and streams. When the excess nitrogen and phosphorus make their way into the lakes, it helps proliferate blue-green algae blooms, which can contain toxins that cause humans to feel sick and can kill animals such as dogs. Parisi says that due to the number of dairy farms in the area, manure runoff causes a serious risk to the health of our lakes.
2: There are close to 60,000 cows in the North Mendota watershed that produce an amount of waste close to the equivalent of over 2.5 million people. Unlike human waste, however, other than the farms currently utilizing digesters, cow manure is not treated. Rather, it is usually spread on fields, making it more vulnerable to runoff.
3: Currently, there are two manure digesters in Dane County that process manure from around 10,000 cows. The county's goal with the new processing facility is to increase that to the manure of 40,000 cows, which would result in the treatment of 400 million gallons of cow manure every year. Parisi says that this would not only greatly reduce the amount of runoff, but would also help the county become carbon neutral.
2: A plant treating the manure of 30,000 cows would reduce methane emissions by the equivalent of more than 100,000 metric tons of carbon dioxide. This reduction is comparable to removing the emissions of nearly 255 miles driven by passenger vehicles, or 10 million gallons of gasoline per year. 10 million gallons.
3: The processing facility works by basically converting the liquid manure into a dry, solid manure. This dry manure still holds all the nutrients it needs to fertilize the soil, but becomes easier to spread accurately across the field. Meanwhile, the liquid manure removed can then be converted to methane gas, which then gets turned into natural gas, which is then sold through the county's renewable natural gas plant next to the landfill. James Ty is the founder and executive director of the Clean Lakes Alliance, a nonprofit dedicated to improving the water quality of Madison's lakes and streams. He says that this new processing facility is a way to make both farmers and the lakes happy and sustainable.
2: Yeah, so
4: the idea is being built specifically for dairy farmers. Um, instead of them building their own facility, We're going to come together as a community and pay for that because the importance of dairy in Dane County. It's $1.3 billion in, in the economy, so we want to keep the dairy here, but we also want to make sure that the lakes are healthy and we protect the climate.
3: If the study is approved in the county budget and approved in later budgets once the study is complete, the new processing facility should open within the next few years. Can't wait that long and want to know when the best times to spread manure are now? The State Department of Agriculture, Trade, and Consumer Protections runs a manure management advisory system that gives daily updates to the current runoff risk of anywhere in Wisconsin. Also included in Parisi's 2023 budget, which is expected to be released next Monday, is an additional $2 million to begin the next phase of the county's Suck the Muck initiative. The initiative, which removes sediment from area streams, has already removed 180,000 pounds of phosphorus and 56,000 tons of sludge from Dorn, Token, and Six Mile Creek, all of which flow into Lake Mendota. The next phase of the project, expected to begin in 2024, will focus on Door Creek near Lake Caganza. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wickehout.
1: Small business owners in Wisconsin and around the country are still trying to recover from the pandemic's initial shocks. Advocates say they can make it especially hard to secure health insurance for themselves and their staff, but the Inflation Reduction Act is allowing some extra ACA credits to stay in place longer. Mike Mowen with the Wisconsin News Connection has more.
5: Average Affordable Care Act premiums in Wisconsin would have been 56 percent higher this year without temporary subsidies from the federal government. Small business advocates say a new extension is a big help when smaller firms are trying to get back on their financial feet. The Inflation Reduction Act included a provision to extend the ACA's premium subsidies through 2025. The extra tax credits are from an earlier pandemic relief package and were set to run through this year. David Chase with the Small Business Majority says the extension removes a lot of headaches during a complicated time for owners of smaller operations.
6: Only about half of small businesses are able to offer coverage and we've seen that number, you know, drop even more since the pandemic, which makes the Inflation Reduction Act even
2: more important.
5: Chase says since it was put in place, the affordable care act has been a game changer for small businesses. But acknowledges owners still face challenges. He says health care costs continue to rise, with one recent analysis noting marketplace insurers were already proposing premium hikes for 2023. Policy experts say the subsidy extension will help buffer those higher expenses. Sean Fetiplace works in the Midwest with the Main Street Alliance and is based in Wisconsin. He says the extension is especially helpful here because Wisconsin still is among the 12 states that have yet to expand Medicaid under the Affordable Care Act. He says that adds barriers for small business owners trying to build the staff these days.
3: A lot of folks go and do jobs that they're working for large corporations purely to get health insurance. You have folks who don't start a business because they need health insurance. You have folks that only are part-time with their business because they need health insurance.
5: The Inflation Reduction Act also will allow Medicare to negotiate some drug prices. Analysts say that could also help small business owners in the future because skyrocketing prices have made it harder to select a plan to offer to their staff. Mike Moen, Wisconsin News Connection. Find our rate trust indicators to support transparency and accuracy at publicnewsservice.org.
1: time is now six thirty three, and you're listening to the local news on wort 89.9 fm madison i'm sarah hopeful here with christian Knutsen. thanks for joining us
0: every tuesday we check in with the editorial staff over at the daily cardinal one of uw madison's student newspapers to learn the latest news from campus this week cardinal call producer hope Carnop spoke with annabella roshioni about the issue of brain drain and why college grads are leaving wisconsin
7: Yeah, definitely the most surprising thing for me was how much people at first wanted to stay in Wisconsin. Um
8: Welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup, joined today by Feature's editor, Annabella Roscioni to discuss the dynamics of Wisconsin's brain drain. Thank you so much for being here, Annabella. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Could you start by explaining where the
7: idea for this article came from? So I saw this tweet, thanks to you, Hope, that said that a lot of people, who recently graduated college in the state of Wisconsin were moving to other states and the highest places that they were moving were, Wisconsin, or were Illinois and Minnesota. So I wanted to like dig a little bit deeper into why that was. And yeah, it was just interesting to find out more. How does
8: geography play a role in where UW students are moving to specifically in the Midwest?
7: Yeah, so in interviewing people, I came to realize that Wisconsin is in a unique geographic position because it's situated, like, its borders are an hour away from two major metro areas, um, the Twin Cities and the Chicago area, and, you know, er, cities are just attractive to young people in general, so that's not really, like, helping Wisconsin retain its, like, young population. With these two cities so close by um, especially for people from wisconsin it's really easy to move there if you can drive and like still come home and stuff like
5: that
8: you talked with the wisconsin policy forum for this piece what did they have to say about this trend and potential solutions to it
7: yeah so this is a trend that has been going on for a couple decades now i believe 1980 is when they first started tracking this and Wisconsin has always had a negative retention rate for its undergrads uh, or for people who graduate. And um, it's always been in like the top 10 states that has like one of the worst retention rates, basically. Um, So this definitely isn't a problem that's going to reverse itself. Scott Walker and a couple other people when he was in office proposed like tax cuts to try and keep new grads in the state, but that didn't end up getting passed. And it's really difficult to know if like those actually do anything to keep people. So it's kind of tricky um, to know like what's gonna keep people in a state or not. Um, What I did learn is that since Wisconsin does have like a relatively low cost of living, it's good at like keeping people, like if you didn't move away and you stayed or like you're from here, um, it's pretty good at keeping you in the state, um, just like that and other things. Um, yeah, but solutions are difficult because it's hard to know, like, if they actually work.
8: You chatted with several students for this story and where they moved to. What were some of the factors that influenced where they decided to move after graduation?
7: Um, definitely the biggest factor was jobs. Um all three people that I talked to um, had applied for, well, I talked to one person who stayed in Madison and then the other two who moved, and everyone had applied for jobs in Madison, but of the two who ended up moving, it just ended up being like they could not find, like, what they were looking for in Madison, and neither of them really had interest in moving to other parts of the state, Um, and it was just, like, jobs that brought them, To other cities was the main reason and none of them really had like a um negative like view like it wasn't necessarily that they totally like wanted to leave like i need to get out of here more so that they felt like they had to to like find more economic and employment opportunities
8: can you describe the impact on the surrounding community like madison when young professionals leave the area
7: Obviously, like, UW is so, like, ingrained in the city and, like, it's such a big employer. Um, And, like, you know, college towns in Madison is always going to have, like, a high, like, turnover rate of, like, people in, like, the 18 to 20-something age category just, like, by the nature of going to school somewhere. But it's definitely difficult, I think, when there's, like, not a lot of, like, industries in Madison, like, to keep young people around. Um, It's hard for the people who stay who don't necessarily like have those financial means to like upkeep um, the city, basically just like the essence of it. Just like, I guess like shopping centers, malls, churches, schools, things like that, like without like those taxes coming in and stuff, that's when it gets difficult. So there was a Bloomberg article that my story referred to that refers to this thing called the knowledge economy, which is basically, I don't know, it's a difficult, like, concept, I think, to understand, but basically, yeah, just, like, a large number of, like, highly educated people move out. It's difficult to, like, keep up the standards of the city.
8: So you wrote that weather might also be a factor in determining where people decide to move. As an out-of-state student from Arizona, do you have any perspectives on how weather impacts people's post-graduation plans?
7: Um, yeah, definitely. So I referred to this statistic um, from the New York Times that Phoenix is the fastest growing city in the country. Um, and I am from the Phoenix area, which is fun. And yeah, the Sunbelt is growing at like rapid rates, you know, not just Phoenix, Las Vegas, Tucson, Texas, New Mexico, all these states are really popular right now. Um, for lots of reasons, but one of them is definitely the weather and that's like a growing trend across the country is to move to somewhere with better weather, um, which makes it difficult for Wisconsin because we can't control the weather. Um, (laughs) and that's not something that like we could ever make more attractive. Um, yeah. So I feel like for me personally, weather isn't, um, you know, it doesn't like bother me too much. I've lived in Wisconsin and Arizona, which is, you know, like the most extremes that you could get probably. Um, But for lots of other people, that's not the case. And um, I think that it's going to be more difficult as these Sunbelt cities continue to grow at crazy rates. Um, It's difficult for the Sunbelt cities to, like, you know, keep on growing at these rates. And there's definitely, like, problems of, like, displacement and other things within those cities. But this trend is definitely not going to help the Midwest continue to retain its population.
8: Is there anything that surprised you while talking to
7: recent graduates for this story? Yeah, definitely the most surprising thing for me was how much people at first wanted to stay in Wisconsin. I thought that it was going to be more of like a conscious, like I want to move to like a big city, I want to move to Chicago or Minneapolis and get out. But everyone that I talked to sort of like, they expressed interest in wanting to stay. Um, One of the girls that I talked to said that she applied to nearly 100 jobs and 50 of them were in Madison. And like, they just didn't end up working out. And that's why she had to leave. And it was not so much that they all wanted to go, just like that there were better things elsewhere that took them out of the state. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about your story? Um, I would say it's just an interesting topic to keep in the back of your head when you think about certain cities across the country and why they might not be as prosperous as they once were, or, like, why certain things have changed like that. Um, I think that this topic is interesting, and especially, like, to college students right now, I think that it'll be interesting to think about this when we all think about where we want to move when we graduate. Thank you so much for
8: coming on the show, Annabella.
7: Yeah, thanks for having
8: me again. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been the Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison.
1: Tonight on Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor, Jackie Sandberg breaks down what you should do if you find a bat in the winter months.
9: Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment And today we'll be talking about bats and now that we're getting into our fall period we're thinking about bat migration maybe exclusion maybe talking about bats that are gonna be here all throughout the winter and what do you do with bats what kind of bats are we seeing are they sick are they injured are they healthy we get so many questions from the public about different bats and i thought it was worthwhile to talk about some of the most common situations we find ourselves in So the first thing is that there are a lot of bats here in the Madison area and in Dane County. And we do see many, many bats downtown, especially in the older homes, at least in our area, on State Street, Langdon Street, that kind of area, kind of near campus. Now that's not the only place, there's lots of other older buildings, but those are the ones we think of when we think about holes and access points and places that bats might be able to get into really easily. I think of the really tall attics and maybe ones that you don't really access very often, but every once in a while you're up there and you're rummaging around or maybe you're doing home renovation and you happen to take out a wall and find that there are bats that are roosting behind it. What the heck do you do? In most years, we would normally suggest, well, if you find bats in your home, you should always be talking to uh, Dane County Public Health. And we always, always recommend that if you've got a bat in your home, giving a call to Dane County Animal Services, through public health at 608-255-2345, extension 6, is going to be your best option. Now we do work with our animal service officers very dearly all throughout the year. Bats are really tough right now because technically still, since. COVID-19, all bat rehabilitation in the state is banned during the winter. So we are still in that time period. And so there aren't gonna be options once we get into the later, late October, November, December time period, even into January and February, if you find them, there won't be options to take a bat to a rehabilitator, which would normally be our biggest program in our wildlife center for the whole year. Now we see mostly little brown bats and big brown bats in our area. I would say big brown bats are the most common And that's because they are pretty well adapted to living kind of in urban areas around people because they can find enough food when they're outside flying around during the summertime. But they like to uh, roost in a lot of different areas. So it doesn't have to be a cave that they're found in. They are a cave dwelling bat, just like our little brown bats are. But we do find those probably most often in downtown homes or in buildings. So that's the most common call we get is, hey, I found this little bat. He's on in a building or on a building. And it doesn't mean that on a building is a bad thing. When it gets colder into the winter time, especially anytime that it's uh, 40 degrees or above, even into November and December, bats will actually still be active, but they might be taking a little bit of extra heat uh, benefit from the outside of people's homes. So if you have a little bit of a leaky home or maybe a nice warm rock face, I suppose that's being uh, warmed up by the sun. If you get a nice day out, a bat might be utilizing that for some extra warmth. Now, normally, we shouldn't see bats out in the wintertime, but one thing we think about is the uh, white nose fungus or PD. And white nose fungus has been uh, spreading through North America since at least 2006, and it was identified in about 2007 in New York and has since then just spread you know, rapidly. So white nose is something that we look for. It's a little fungus that grows on bats noses. It is found, like I said, in caves. And since we have cave dwelling bats in Wisconsin, it has been something that has just absolutely decimated the populations of little brown bats all around, which is why they're considered a a species of not only special concern, but are actually threatened and endangered now in the Wisconsin and probably most of North America. So the fungus uh, eats away at the tissue, the wing tissue, the, you know, it'll be at the ends, the ears, the nose, and it wakes them up prematurely from hibernation. So seeing them out in the wintertime you know, if it's a really nice day out, it's really mild, it's possible, but they really probably should be hibernating. So to see a bat outside in the winter, uh, not the worst case scenario, but if they've got any evidence of that fungus, then unfortunately that's something that we would have to try to treat. And we've only treated a few of them. There's no known cure at all for it, but it's sad to say that, you know, it's pretty deadly because through research in North America about 90 to 100 percent of bats have died once they've gotten our white nose fungus and the hardest hit ones are our northern long-eared bats, the little brown bat, and the tricolored bat. Luckily, those that are big browns have not really seen that yet. So that's probably, again, our most common species to treat and work with. But it's really sad because they are such an important part of our environment. Now, if you are living in a house that does have bats, other things to maybe look up are other common thing is, you know, is this bat going to have rabies? What do I do in this situation? Anytime you have a bat to human or a bat to domestic animal pet situation where there's a possibility there is an exposure, you know, a bite, a lick, anything like that, from you know you see your dog was playing with it your cat was playing with a bat that really should be taken very seriously, and the public health department is is really on top of it here. But yes, we would want to have that that process to test for rabies, and rabies is something that is fatal in humans, and we're not all you know vaccinated for rabies or anything like your dogs and cats are. But even if there was contact, you know that might require a booster shot, you know, from your your veterinarian. So these are all things that I think you know should be taken into account, and you should call an animal service officer to come help and assess the situation, but. If that bat's in your living space, or if it's around children that maybe couldn't tell you if they've been bitten by a bat or anything, while less than 1% of wild bats have rabies, we do have rabies positives come up in Wisconsin and in Dane County, you know, every year. So it's not worth just like letting the bat go. If you think, yes, the cat got the bat, it would be better to contain the bat safely and to talk with a professional, whether it's us at the Wildlife Center or Animal Services, Public Health, um, or the Wisconsin DNR, which, to call the Wisconsin DNR, super important. Uh, they actually have some specific bat related numbers, which is great. Um, they actually have an email address, uh, Bats at wisconsin.gov, uh, which is preferred. But they do have a phone number to call and ask about bats, which is 608-294-7025 or the wildlife hotline at 608-267-0866. In general, because we're not able to rehabilitate, uh, we might be able to help with the rabies testing process, but if it's anything other than that, you should call the DNR for advice on what to do and until at least the COVID situation has passed. And then otherwise, um, our phone number, if you did find one that you know was other injured, might freeze to death, anything like that where we might be able to help at least in some sort of way, we would hate to see an animal suffer out in the wild during this time of year as we start to get into colder temperatures because they should be hibernating and safe and sound, but you might still incur that type of situation where that animal does need emergency services in some way. Um, our phone number is 608. 608- Two eight seven three two three five. So you can also email us at wildlife at give shelter.org or check on our website. So hopefully you're just seeing them through the October migration period. They should be all settled in usually by about the end of October. And then we won't see very many of them other than being in your house, potentially either away from people or, constituting an exposure, which is where we might be helping with. Or again, if you find a sick or dead bat, I would definitely call the DNR to report. But other than that, you know, looking for things like white nose syndrome is definitely a very important part of research and how we help as rehabilitators to identify that if they do come in. And uh, we really want to promote having bats in our environment just because of how great they are for ecosystem services, like getting rid of large insect populations, which uh, sometimes for us, if you don't like mosquitoes, you really like bats. So <laughs> thanks again for listening on WORT. This has been Wildlife Weekly.
0: Sorry, Bruce Willis. It seems you're out of a job because this week on Radio Astronomy, hosts Daniel Rybarczyk and Anthony Taylor break down NASA's mission to protect the planet from near-Earth objects.
6: Welcome to Radio Astronomy. I'm Dan Robarchek and I'm Anthony Taylor. Today we're talking about a NASA mission that culminated yesterday with the collision of a spacecraft into an asteroid. That's right. This wasn't some clumsy mistake or unexpected catastrophe. It was actually the whole point of the mission. Called the Double Asteroid Redirection Test, or DART, this was the first ever mission intended to test a method of asteroid deflection. In other words, NASA wanted to find out if we could alter the trajectory of an asteroid through space. Why? Well, there are a lot of reasons, but perhaps the most obvious and most important is pretty simple. Planetary defense. It's been famously quipped that if
4: the dinosaurs had had a space program, they might still be around. But all jokes aside, even though major asteroid impacts are rare, a large asteroid impact could still pose
6: an existential threat to life as we know it. Astronomers are constantly monitoring asteroids in the solar system that might pose a threat to life on Earth. If there's a large asteroid hurtling towards Earth, there's a pretty good chance that we'll know it's coming. But even if that happens, what would we do about it? Ideally, we'd want to somehow redirect the asteroid so that it passes harmlessly by Earth, rather than smashing down and causing potentially catastrophic effects to Earth's atmosphere and most forms of life. DART was launched
4: as a way to test NASA's kinetic impactor technology, which is just a fancy way of saying
6: crashing a spacecraft into an asteroid to change its path. Specifically, NASA chose to strike an asteroid called Dimorphos, which orbits another larger asteroid called Didymos. That's why the D in DART stands for double. These two objects orbit each other in a binary system. Before DART, the time it took for these two objects to orbit each other was 11 hours and 55 minutes at a distance of about three-quarters of a mile. Because these asteroids form a binary
4: system, astronomers can easily measure how long the orbit is by measuring the changes in brightness from the two asteroids as they pass in front of and behind each other over the course of time. So if some object, say a spacecraft, came in and walloped one of the asteroids, changing its orbit, scientists would be able to easily measure the effect of that collision and the asteroid's orbits. That's why NASA picked this object to test
6: the kinetic impactor technology. DART launched in November, 2021, heading on a collision course with Dimorphos, the smaller asteroid in the binary pair. There's no chance that this asteroid system would hit Earth before or after impact. So this is a safe testing ground for NASA. And just yesterday, DART successfully made impact. Weighing a little over 1,200 pounds, DART
4: smashed into the five billion kilogram dimorphos at a speed of 14,000 miles per hour with the intent of bringing it closer to its partner Didymos, shortening its orbital period by several minutes. Over the coming weeks and months, astronomers will monitor the effects of DART's impact on the binary system to measure precisely
6: how the collision affected the asteroid's orbit. As a first step towards planetary defense, the mission was a great success. DART struck the asteroid dimorphos as intended. This demonstrates that kinetic impactor technology is a viable method of asteroid deflection, which could potentially protect Earth from a dangerous impact in the future. The European Space Agency's HERA project
4: will study the surfaces of Dimorphos and Didymos in another four years to study the impact left by DART, and provide a more detailed analysis of the kinetic impactor's
6: effect on the asteroids. For now, there's nothing to worry about no major asteroid is expected to strike Earth in the foreseeable future. Nevertheless, as a long-term method of planetary defense, humanity is now more secure from the threat of catastrophic asteroid impacts. That's all for Radio Astronomy.
4: Keep looking up and have a stellar week.
0: And that does it for our show. Thank you for listening to WORT's Live Local News at 6. Your headline writer this evening was Christian Billings.
1: Your reporter tonight was Mike Moen with the Wisconsin News Connection.
0: Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the Radio Astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal.
1: And thanks to all of our wonderful Pledge rappers, Jade Siri Ramos and Sierra Powers, who we'll hear from in just a moment.
0: Engineer Dave Lawrenson got the news on the air.
1: Nate Buggy Howe produced this newscast.
0: Charlie Pittman is a news director at WORT. I'm, I'm Ro- I'm your host, Christian Knutson.
1: And I'm your host, Sarah Hopeful. And thanks to all of you who pledged. We still have a few minutes left, so we'll throw it back to Jade and Sierra in the studio.
0: And